every day. Uh, it is September 14th. It is 2011. I wanted to start a message that is called the First Church of Self. I told you I was serious about trying to run people off. I really don't mean that, and I also do all at the same time. My goal would be to have only those who want to be disciples, those who want to grow, those who are serious about the kingdom. But those that are serious about the kingdom's resources and benefits and not at all serious about doing the work of the kingdom, uh, those are labeled goats in the end and you wear yourself out with it. So uh, this comes from this book, uh, Radical, by David Platt. I've told you a little bit about it in the last few weeks. Listen, it says... We live in a church culture that has a dangerous tendency to disconnect the grace of God from the glory of God. Our hearts resonate with the idea of enjoying God's grace. We bask in sermons, conferences, and books that exalt a grace that centers on us. And while the wonder of grace is worthy of our attention, if that grace is disconnected from its purpose, the sad result is a self-centered Christianity that bypasses the heart of God. If you were to ask the average Christian sitting in the average worship service on a Sunday morning to summarize the message of Christianity, you would most likely hear something along these lines. The message of Christianity is that God loves me. Or someone might say, the message of Christianity is that God loves me enough to send his son Jesus to die for me. Let me pause there for a minute. Doesn't that sound pretty acceptable? Pretty palatable? Y'all lose the power of speech? It does, doesn't it? As wonderful as this sentiment sounds, the question is, is it biblical? Isn't it incomplete based on what we've seen in the Bible? God loves me is not the essence of biblical Christianity. Because if God loves me is the message of Christianity, then who is the object of Christianity? God loves me. Me. Christianity's object is me. Therefore, when I look for a church, I will look for music that best fits me and programs that best cater to me and my family. When I make plans for my life and career, it is about what works best for me and my family. When I consider the house I will live in, the car I will drive, the clothes I will wear, the way I will live, I will choose according to what is best for me. This version of Christianity is the one that largely prevails in our culture. But it is not biblical Christianity. The message of biblical Christianity is not God loves me, period, as if we were the object of our own faith. The message of biblical Christianity is God loves me so that I might make his ways, his salvation, his glory, his greatness known among the nations. Now God is the object of our faith, and Christianity centers around him. We are not the end of the gospel. God is. Do you pick up on the different saints? Yes. One is ultimately selfish. And the other is, by necessity, the other is selfless. One is what all God will do for you. And the other is what all you were called to do for God. I would submit that there is too much of the former and not enough of the latter. Would you all agree with me? Yes. Okay. Our message this morning comes from Acts 1. Please turn there this morning, this evening. Randy, I think it's your third time we've seen you now. That makes you family. <laughs> Acts 1, verse 1. 
Isn't God good? In Acts 1, let us pick up in the fourth verse. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, let's pick up in the first verse. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to, what is that phrase? Do. Do and teach. teach. Isn't it great that Luke put it in the right order for us? What Jesus did and what Jesus taught. The order that we put it in is what we teach and maybe if we can get to it, what we do. But the way that Jews put things in order is what they do and then what they teach. See, because we're interested in the intellect first and then we may go fact check it. We may look to see if it shows up in their life. But Judaism looks to see if a thing is in the life and then listens to the teaching. What a big difference, huh? Listen to Acts 1-4 then. Let us start there. On one occasion, when he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. There was no option here. There was no little sub-paragraph, no fine print that takes away the bold print here. He told those who walked with him three and a half years, those who saw the dead raised, saw him walk on water, they had personally healed people, cast out demons, and raised the dead. Luke 10 says it, Luke 9 says it, the Gospels say this. And he told them they were not qualified yet. Because the reality is, as long as we're depending upon what we teach, as long as we're depending upon what we are in and of ourselves, it's woefully inadequate, isn't it? Amen. They were lacking something. They were lacking a permanent endowment of God's power. And he wanted them to know they were useless without it. Amen. Wow. Today, the baptism of the Holy Ghost is considered an optional add-on. You can go to a special service at some point and maybe hear something about it in the back. We don't want to embarrass anybody. We want our churches to run like business meetings. These men were told to wait for what God had shown. Then in the charismatic arena, which I spent most of my life in at this point, we've reduced the baptism of the Holy Ghost to simply one thing that happened to have happened. They spoke in other tongues. But I want you to notice the emphasis here. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked the Lord, Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? It seems that their emphasis was on what God could do for them as well. Funny. Man's emphasis is always on what God's going to do for them. And God's emphasis is always on what man should be doing for him. Have you ever wondered, with a name like I am that I am, God wanting to be the object of worship, God tolerating no rivals, being called jealous, does that make God selfish? Well, it's a bad thought, isn't it? Of course, if you could even entertain that thought for a moment, the best question would be, who do I think should be exalted alongside him? What would even give me such a thought? The reality is, 
we're fine with lifting up the Lord as long as there's something in it for us. The gospel point blank requires us, confronts us with our inability, our total inadequacy, our need to surrender every detail of our life and then say, Lord, I won't serve you for fishes or loaves. I won't serve you because you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel. I will serve you because it's what you've designed me and empowered me to do. And everything else is failure. That's what the gospel is, friends. This is not the gospel that we hear preached, and it's often not the gospel that we live, but it is the gospel. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates that the Father has set by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. I have preached this a hundred times, and I've heard it preached ten thousand times. You will receive dunamos, dynamite power, when the Holy Ghost comes upon you. And those of us that pray in other languages and maybe have seen some miracles and things, we have our own little slant on this. Listen to Jesus' emphasis. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He's saying you will receive something that when planted in your city, it will move outward and take over your entire region and then the neighboring regions and then it will take over the whole world. In the charismatic world, how dare us reduce this to simply praying in another language. In the cessationist world, the non-moving of the gifts world, how dare them act like this is not necessary? How could you possibly win the world? without the baptism in the Holy Ghost. I want you to see the order in which this happens, though. And much has been made about this, but not quite enough. He says, in Jerusalem. It had to start somewhere. God picked a specific place on the planet, and He said, this is where my Spirit will be poured out. It would never be contained there, but it would start there. The kingdom also starts in a specific place. For you, where did it start? It starts inside of you. But just as the gospel started in Jerusalem and could not be contained there, it was supposed to radiate outward. The gospel was never for you, about you. God blesses for only one reason. To be a blessing. He saves for only one reason. So that others might get saved. He touches you for only one reason. That you would go be His hands and feet for other people. And what we do is we join hands and form bless me clubs. I'm blessed, you're blessed. Me, Susie, Johnny, us four, no more. The gospel inherently is about the power of God to do something more with what he's given you than just affect you. We have exalted self to the point that we are the object of our own faith. Our best life now. What we want now, our healing through a formula now, the point of the gospel is not this perversion. The point of the gospel is He has anointed me for them. For everyone out there. And friends, who is our target? Well, Ezekiel 34, in the fourth verse, outlines some people that were ignored. They were ignored by the shepherds of Israel and God was mad. And why were they ignored? Well, they were the ones who were weak, sick, injured, strays, and lost, 
Who is the gospel for? That is our target audience. But this is not who you want to hang around with, is it? You don't want to hang around any more than I do with the weak, sick, injured, strays, or lost. I mean, the lost are filthy. The strays are confused. The injured can't walk by themselves. The sick might get you sick. And the weak, who wants to be weak? But remember, the gospel never leaves somebody the way it found them. Amen. Never. There was a church in the town that some of us had been in. It's called Wounded Heart Ministries. No wonder it failed. If this is your goal, to draw the wounded hearts, this is a good goal, but never to leave them that way. The gospel is not around about centering around a political idea. It's not about simply agreeing on or aspiring to certain principles. The gospel is about the divine power of God that now resides in His people for the rest of the world. You are the repository of God's power. You are the bank from which they have to make withdrawals. You are the ambassador of God, making an appeal to a dying world. But what happens when the ambassadors stay home? In Acts 2, in the 14th verse, we find that Peter is speaking to the men of Jerusalem. He's fulfilling the call. One chapter after it was said, on the day that he received the Holy Ghost, the man had been hiding in this city. He had been locked inside for fear of the Jews, but now he is boldly proclaiming to every man in Jerusalem, listen to me. God has given me something that is for you. It sounds like he didn't say, oh good, I got a revelation that was about me. Run home and find out how to get rich and happy. God gave him something that he knew inherently. It was for them, not him. The gospel could not be selfish. It had to be centrifugal. It had to spread out because this is what Jesus said would happen when the power of the Holy Ghost came upon them. They would be witnesses. Jeremiah described this like fire shut up in his bones. He couldn't help but tell. Woe unto me if I do not preach the gospel, he said. Where is that heart? We've been perverted. We've decided that the gospel is ultimately about how we can live more meaningful lives. The gospel is about how everyone else can benefit from the grace God poured in you so that it would not be without effect. So that you will not have run your race in vain. So that your life would not be about you. If you were saved and you had a selfish life, a life that exalted you, a life that was all about you, what you wanted to eat, what you wanted to wear, what you wanted to drive, what you wanted to make, what you wanted to spend, and you got saved, and the only difference is now God is helping you get all of those things, it doesn't sound like you really got saved for much, does it? Sounds like you picked up a little pocket god, a Pokemon along the way. And yet, sadly, this is Christianity today. Except I'm not sure it's really even Christianity. Maybe we've lost the ability to discern sheep from goats. They had gotten to all of Jerusalem by the fifth chapter of Acts. Look at the eighth chapter of Acts. Good man. 
in the 8th chapter of Acts. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. An interesting thing. In Acts 2, Jerusalem is being reached. The same day that the Holy Ghost power was poured out, Jerusalem was being reached. But there is no mention of Judea or Samaria until great persecution breaks out. There is something that is in our nature that God says, I want these five things done. And we go, I did number one. And we can't. And we want to pat on the back. And we're sure we're heroes because we did the first thing that he asked us to do. By the ninth chapter of Acts, though, persecution has spread the gospel to Judea and Samaria. From the 10th chapter of Acts to the 28th chapter of Acts, you know where it was going? To the ends of the earth. Friends, it took 15 years to get it out of Jerusalem. It took one day to get it to Jerusalem and 15 years to get it out of Jerusalem. This is because our nature is about what it does for us. And anything that is uncomfortable, anything that is hard, it almost takes God with a goad to get us to do something. So the way God got it to Jerusalem in just a few days, he let Peter and John get beat up. He let them go to jail. He had an angelic jailbreak. There was such amazing opposition in their hometown that when they stood up to it, everybody knew it had to be God. And the people were embraced. They said in, in Acts 5, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Well, how did they fill it? <laughs> they filled it because they were greatly opposed and God enabled them to stand up. But having done that, nobody was looking towards Judea or Samaria. Nobody was looking towards the ends of the earth. We're doing pretty good right here, you know. So God allowed a great persecution. And everywhere they went, they preached the gospel. Because it's who they were. Everywhere they went, they knew it was not for them. They needed help getting in front of the right audience. But when there, they knew what to do. And so the gospel, by the end of Paul's life, had reached the known Roman world. That's an amazing thing when you think about it, isn't it? Let's leave that subject for a minute. Turn with me to Genesis 28. You guys are smart. We can bounce through a couple subjects and you'll be able to string them together, won't you? In Genesis 28, let's pick up in the first verse. So Isaac called for Jacob and he blessed him and commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite woman. Go at once to Padan Aram to the house of your mother's father, Bethuel. Take a wife for yourself there from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you may become a community of peoples. He didn't say, I just want you to become a huge crowd. He didn't say, I want God's blessing upon you so that you will increase. Did you notice how quickly the prayer of Jabez caught on around the world? Of course, who doesn't want their house to grow? Who doesn't want their stuff to grow? I could name 10 other prayers that I think are more biblically uh, appropriate, but those wouldn't sell books at Walmart. God wanted this man blessed. Why? 
so they would become a community of people. In Hebrew, the word for community, the word for assembly, the word for a large gathering, is one of two words. It's quahal, or it is um, ida. Quahal or ida. Now, that's only important for this reason. When we move through the word and you get somewhere like Exodus 12, you see that what started with just Jacob and his wife and grew out of the bonds of the family, they increased in number and they became the Quahal or Eda of Israel. So what started with just one man and a blessing that he received from God through his father ends up a relationship with a wife, ends up bearing children, ends up growing into a nation. Do you see how something started inside of one man, affected one family, and then begins to affect the world? See, by the time we move out of Exodus 12 and we move into places like Deuteronomy 23, it's no longer even called Jacob's family. It's no longer called the community of Israel. It's now called the community of Yahweh. Deuteronomy 23, 1 through 8 is the Quahal of Yahweh, the assembly of the Lord. So what started in one man's life and he joined to a wife and then they had children was now affecting a whole household. Then it grew to the point that it affected tribes and then grew from tribes to a place where it affected a whole country. And then it grew to something that God himself said, this is my assembly. That's an amazing thing. Nobody joined this assembly because of political ideals, because of race. Nobody joined this assembly for economic reasons. There was only one way to get in this assembly. You had to be called to it. But something happened when one man's life was no longer about him and his wife's life was no longer just about them and their children's life was no longer just about them. People felt attracted to the cult. And a nation began to build. This is the nation that God began working with. You know, God used these very same words through Paul, speaking about you. If a Hebrew was going to say, of oh, the church of God, there would have been no word. He would say the Pohal of God. If he were going to, to say it uh, in Greek, he would say the Ecclesia of God. These are the words that Paul uses to refer to the Corinthian church. It's the words that he uses in Acts 20 uh, when speaking to the Ephesian elders. They're overseers of the church of God. Quahal or Ecclesia in Greek. Both of these words have the same meaning. Those who were drafted out to be a part of something that was bigger. Something that was bigger than that. So from this, and from what I was telling you earlier, I hope you begin to see this. Our God starts with one person. He plants something in them, say Gabriel. But it was never just for Gabriel or about him. It was about causing something in him to grow out of him that others would benefit from. Let's just say JJ. They begin to unite together in something like a family. But when the family gets very large... It looks more like a community or a nation. And that would be called God's. Because it would all belong to him. Because even though it had a, a head, a place it started, it was God who planted the seed. It was God who watered the tree. It was God who made it grow. 
This is the story of mankind. But instead, we keep getting off on our little tangents and building our own kingdoms. The gospel is about everyone else. Yep. What was put in you was for them. Yep. And our job is to build something that looks like a family that we could call a community. It has a structure to it. It has an order in it. And it has a purpose for it. You know, a long time ago, English surnames had to do with what your family did for a living. So when you met somebody whose name was Blacksmith, it's because that was their family's purpose. They were blacksmiths. In the kingdom, something that was born in one human being and then they began to join to others and others and others, it also has a purpose. It was always glorifying the Father's name. There was never any other purpose. Even Jesus' ministry was to glorify the Father's name. So a church is a community or family with an organized leadership structure that has a divine purpose. I want to talk to you for one second. Okay, it'll be longer than a second. <laughs> About where we kind of stand, though. God is trying to build something communal that prays in terms of we that looks in terms of everybody's need, that is as concerned about the widows who are being overlooked in the daily uh, bread distribution as they are the apostles. We're looking for something. This is what God wanted to build. But in, in our situation, turn with me to Deuteronomy 12. In Deuteronomy 12, Look at verse 4. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, but you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put His name. There is His dwelling. Before we move any further, out of all of the land that God said would be theirs, out of all of the people that God said were His, they were to seek the one specific place where God was going to start yet another building another community, another structure, another organization. Do you understand? In other words, God started something and it grew to be a nation, but now He's going to specify a singular place that He wants to do something yet new and grow it out of there. This is the way of the kingdom. It's never stagnant. Now watch what He says next. To that place you must go. There bring your burnt offerings and sacrifice, your tithes and special gifts, whatever you have vowed to give and your first and, and your free will offering and your firstborn herds and flocks. There in the presence of the Lord, your God, uh, you and your family shall eat and shall rejoice in everything you have put your hand to because the Lord your God has blessed you. Um, I missed something. Verse 8. You are not to do... As we do here today, everyone as he sees fit, since you have not yet reached the resting place and the inheritance the Lord is giving you. In Israel, as God had built them into a nation, they got comfortable. They said, okay, I understand how this works. I get up every day, I do this, I do that, and it becomes ritual. And God says, you are not to do as you see fit. I will pick one specific place. That's where you bring your offerings. That's where you come to worship. Our lives are not really any different. You get born again, right? Who, who in here got born again? 
Amen. That's encouraging to a pastor, right? So you get born again. You begin to learn of God's purpose for your life. Then you choose a church. Well, it really shouldn't be that way. But let's just be honest. It usually is. You choose a church. And then at some point, right, you might choose another church. And at some point, another one. In fact, your life becomes full of you choosing lots of things. This is a normal process for us. But God says, grow up. There is something that I have for you, a specific place on the planet where a destiny intersects for you. There is something that I want to build that was never about you or your choices. In fact, it was about your inability to do it alone. I need to connect you with some people. I need to connect you first and foremost with me. But the lie of God in our generation is you can serve God anywhere. I want to tell you that's not true. You cannot serve God from the wrong side of His will. It doesn't work. The reason community is important is because when you realize its value, it makes you want to stay in it. And there's a level of accountability there. Nobody does as they see fit because the community is on the line. You understand what I'm saying? Amen. If you've learned to live in the community, you might not be able to live outside of the community, which means the community must be something that you value. This has been lost in church today. What happens if you leave this church? Where do you go? To any church, right? You just pick one as you drive down the road. But if you're at the church of Thessalonica, what church do you go to if you don't go to that one? There was no other. In the kingdom, they built community. Every person had a spot. Every person was interlocked with every other person. Nobody was expendable. And nobody was above the community. This is an important concept that's been lost. We are so independent, it's toxic. We do as we see fit. It's wrong to simply decide for ourselves what is best without regard to the family of Yahweh. This root behavior brings a curse. It is self-governance rather than lordship. By the time we get to Deuteronomy 29, 19 through 21... God says, do not think that you can hear this oath and invoke a blessing on yourself. Because if you persist in going your own way, I will never be willing to forgive you. And I will bring a curse upon you. God said this to redeemed people who were called by his name. Because the issue was he wanted to be in control of their lives. And their lives were supposed to be about other people. But our natural tendency is to take control of our own lives. Are you hearing me? Here's where we go. Turn with me to Luke 24. The cure for both of these toxic behaviors is community. Community is kind of inward focused. Community is concerned with the community. But it's also outward focused because you cannot have community if you are not learning to submit to one another out of love. You cannot have community if it only exists to support one person. Churches that sometimes get spiritual authority correct error in this one way. They raise up a little Napoleon-like dictator, right? The church lives to support the dictator. Now, a healthy community is when something was born in a human being that grew beyond that human being and began to bless all those who were around them. 
And it began to be the Lord's assembly. Something people could go to and see the Lord at work in. Not something that ultimately blessed a few. The gospel is supposed to bless all. Are y'all in Luke 24? Yes. Watch these events. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that were like gleaming like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. When you begin to look at this, didn't the women have an amazing personal experience. When we have amazing personal experiences, we write books about it and we don't care who understands, who doesn't understand. We hope to gain some profit from it. What did they do with their amazing personal experience? Well, they were the lowest members of the community. They were not in charge with teaching. They were not in charge with ruling. They were not in charge with anything. And yet Jesus, the living God, chose to communicate to the lowest member of the community the world's greatest revelation. That he had been raised from the dead. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? They brought it immediately to the apostles, the leaders of the community, who did not immediately believe them. That seems insulting, doesn't it? But they had different levels of responsibility. For the woman, who needed to make sure, when she saw the revelation, what was at risk? Her life was at risk. When the apostles confronted with the revelation, how many lives are at risk? The entire congregation, right? So they saw something and immediately reported it to the apostles. The apostles did not immediately believe it, but what did they owe it to the woman, to the Lord, and to the community to do? Investigate it. And when they did, what did they find? That it was true. And they obeyed it and they went to Galilee. This is community at work. God could take the lowest member in the community, give the greatest revelation, but because they're interconnected, those in authority would hear it, investigate it, and receive it. The women were not too proud to go and give the revelation to the leaders. They were not so independent that it wasn't important. The leaders were not too proud, too stubborn, too selfish to receive from the lowest members in the community. The goal here was that everybody existed for something bigger than themselves. And so God caused them to be interrelated. Have you ever wondered what a strange way to enter salvation into the world than through a Jewish virgin? 
But he chose to do that. He showed us man's not independent of woman. And women are not independent of man. They need each other. He is always about building community. But we say, if I don't go to church here, I'll go somewhere else. We say, if nobody will do it with me, I'll do it myself. We're Americans. We won the world war. We'll build it bigger and stronger. We will do it. It's, it's us. The Bible is not an American invention. God is working to cause us to realize our profound dependence upon Him and the people He has joined us to. And what happens in this is there is no room to exalt a personality. There are no divas, no prima donnas. There are only people that have learned about their profound need for each other. And you know what? When JJ is helping me, when he's meeting a need I could never meet by myself, and I am helping Dustin meet a need he could never meet by himself, all three of us begin to look outside of the community to see who the community could help that we could never help by ourselves. This is the heart of Christianity. This is how the leaven works through the whole loaf. It's how whatever God has done for you, you seek to do with other people. And watch how this plays out in a very real form. Who was our target audience? Name some of them. Weak, sick, injured, strays, lost. What were you when Jesus found you? All of those. And now whatever you are, you are by the grace of God. And what are you supposed to do? Go find community based on the weak, the sick, the injured, the strays, the lost. And you teach them to be what God has made you. And then together, the two of you, go and do it again. One in the Bible chases how many? And two chases how many? Do you see how it exponentially builds on itself? Because God will pour blessing upon blessing upon blessing where there is unity. Psalm 133 says, How good it is when brothers dwell together in unity. And we think that is a once a year meeting at a promise keeper's. Dwelling together in unity is caring, is much about the person on your left and right as Aaron cared about his two sons. This way the anointing of God can flow through every member of the community. Jorge and Irma are going to have a baby. They're probably going to be induced tomorrow. I'm excited for them. Are you excited for them? Yes. yes. Haven't had some babies? I'm also scared for them. What a difficult time they're about to go through. Still fairly new in their marriage. First child. These are going to be difficult and wonderful times. If we don't do anything but drop off some pampers and say be warm and well fed. Is that really treating them like family? Probably not. As a community, friends, we have to wrap around each other. We have to lift each other's needs above our own needs. The prophecy that I gave, it was really more of a scripture. The reason it's so important that we don't let unwholesome talk come out of our mouths is we're not just strangers in the mall anymore. 
Our brothers' lives might depend on what we're saying and doing. We need each other. I had a revelation at a men's meeting. I guess it's been a couple years now. I wrote it on the inside of my hat. I've been telling the Lord for years I was willing to die for Him. He puts that to the test every now and then. Something happens that really makes me think about whether it's true. But that day, that was not what his concern was for me. Felt like he said the oddest thing to me. I always look for confirmation in the scripture when this happens. He said, yeah, but are you willing to die for your brother's vision? See, if your life is really about the kingdom, then your life is also about your brother's life. It has to be, because his life's not his own either. Who does it belong to? Is the call that is on David or Andrew's life sitting back there any less important than the call that's on your life? So at some point, we stop thinking about me and mine and what I am called to do, and you start thinking about how can we help each person get where God has called them to go. This has been consuming there's another logical reason for this. And we don't need those. God doesn't need to explain himself to me. Let's just be honest. Divide and conquer has worked pretty well for the devil, hasn't it? To the extent that we won't work together, we will never, we'll, we'll chase a thousand by ourselves. That means if there's 60 people in this room tonight, you chase 60,000. But what happens if they're in pairs of two? I'm not smart enough to even do that math. Put an exponent of 10 on it. He knows this. So it keeps us from forming community. In Acts 10, did Peter have a revelation? What was Peter's revelation? Somebody who knows it, spit it out there. In Acts 10, we had a revelation about Cornelius and the Gentiles could be accepted into the kingdom. He had granted them repentance. Did Peter just keep it to himself? Why? Was, it, was he insecure? Was it, was it not authentic? I mean, the man saw angels. He saw a sheet let down from heaven. People showed up at the end of his vision. When he went and did the things that were contained in the vision, there was an amazing heavenly response. So was he insecure that it wasn't God? But he had a responsibility to the community. So you see him in Acts 11 explaining everything that happened to the community. See, there's a problem. When we say church, friends, we think of a building. We go to the church. We walk through the church doors. We pay rent on the church. The light's in the church. This doesn't exist in the first century. The church is another word for community because it came from the Hebrew word quahal, those that God had called together, the drafted assembly. So you don't go to it. You are it. Going to the church means that you sit with Olivia. Means that you sit with Natalie. You're concerned with what God has revealed to them, and it might instruct your life. That's what it means to go to the church from a Hebrew standpoint. So when Peter has this revelation, he runs back to the community and he shares it with them, and it's with a certain level of not intrepidation that God hasn't revealed it to him, but a certain level that the brothers could receive it because they are his brothers. It doesn't stop there. The gospel is full. By the time you get to Acts 15, do you remember a little problem in Acts 15? 
Do we accept these Gentiles into our community? Their ways are different than ours. They laid out the problem. And then leaders in the community, after hearing the members of the community, consulted the book of the community. Said this is in agreement with the prophets. We're rebuilding David's fallen tabernacle. And they issued a decree for the community. There was no such thing as individualism. Brothers, it is our decision, they said. Yeah, think about this. This is not how we live. It's not how we live. And many of us don't because we've seen the evils of a papal system that was dominating the world, that one man's wickedness. But it was never based on a single man. It's supposed to be based on the direction of a whole community. If Israel, friends, had been a democracy, they never would have left Egypt, would they? When Moses showed up and he said, hey, hey, Yahweh, the guy said, I am who I am. He called me to call you out of Israel. Let's take a vote. Would it have passed muster? Nope. If for the 40 years they were in the desert, they'd taken a vote about when they moved camp and didn't move camp. See, democracy is a wonderful governmental institution. It does not work for the church. In the church, it works when God has divinely enabled something called shalom. There are leaders that are not leaders because they're elected. They're not leaders because just God ordained them, although that's part of it. They're leaders because God ordained them and you recognize what God has done. You willingly join that. You ask for that direction. And they also listen to the revelation God gave you realizing that the covenant book tells us the janitor in the church is fit to correct the leaders in the church. This is how that works. By the way, the only time I could think of that Israel ever was a democracy, they chose Saul to be their king. Community works more like a familial body. It works more like a household. Every person has a function in it. Many of the functions are equal, but they are definitely different. Every member has worth. Who in your family would you, who in a healthy family would you like to get rid of? Nobody. None of your kids are dispensable unless you live in China. You want them all. But they all have different roles. The eldest son might have a different role than the youngest daughter. This is how our community is structured. It's not, not biblical. It is the essence of biblical. You know, Leviticus teaches us to rise in the presence of our elders. Many of you may not even know that. There is a certain respect that is supposed to be given that is natural. Don't you know that it is wrong to watch a hundred-year-old man struggle under the strain of a heavy physical load? Doesn't your heart hurt to see that? Now imagine a 17-year-old is walking by. Something is wrong with that picture. God has built into us as we fall in love with Him a sense of community. We just don't know how to do it. So it shows up in our lives like gangs. It shows up like memberships. It shows up as fraternal orders of stupidness. <laughs> or pledge week, fraternities and sororities. It's ridiculous. God has a seat for you. He has opened up a place for you. 
but it was never about you. It's like saying, Olivia, sweetheart, I designed you. I made you. And now I'm going to drop the power in you to be what you were called to be for every other person's sake. No community should exist simply for one person. That would be some kind of strange monarchy. If we're a monarchy, God is our king. But neither are we a democracy. We run more like a family. There is power in community. In John 17, turn there with me. In John 17, let's pick up in verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also believe in us, be in us, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you have sent me and have loved me. I'm sorry, have loved them even as you have loved me. Complete unity sends a message. It says, this is of God. But as long as we're fractious, as long as we're self-seeking and self-exalting, how are we any different than any country club that happens to do charitable things? In community, you leave no one behind. In community, you lift the needs of that community above the needs of an individual. God has called this not to be a church in the crusader sense of the word church. He's called this to be a community of believers who are committed to a greater purpose. God's will being done on the earth. And it starts with His will being done in our lives. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 teaches us that God gave some to be apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors, and evangelists to prepare God's people for works of service until we reach unity in the faith, becoming mature and attaining to the whole measure of Christ. Maturity looks like community. There will never be a time you are self-sufficient, you would be God. There will never be a time where you are impervious to temptation or attack. That would make you like Jesus. Instead, what you are together is the temple of God. Together, the body of Christ. Patricia is not the body of Christ all by herself. She's not. But Patricia with David, with Cody, with Terry, we're forming the body. And it is a worldwide thing. But the same way certain cells on your body make your hand and they're different than the ones that make your feet, this is our local community and it's supposed to join in the larger body. Now, if a life that focuses on itself is selfish, can we all agree? What is a community that focuses on itself? Selfish. So what we know is wrong in a brother's life, that brother's only in it for him. That brother only wants what blesses him. That brother only wants to talk about him. 
The brother's in love with the sound of his own voice. All of those things that we would know are narcissistic in sin, somehow or another, we think are godly when they apply to a church. How God can bless our church. How we can get our voice out there more. How we can be more of the center of things. It's just as self-centered as when an individual does it. This community of believers does not exist to bless this community of believers. This is why when you walk through this door, there is something that you see. There are people from every corner of the world that are being blessed by what started in the individual lives here as we join together in community. You know, what Eric Stevens cannot do alone, I can do with you. Amen. What you cannot do alone, you can do with us. It was never supposed to be about us. There's work to be done. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Work to be done. I want to share work with you in two spheres. The first is going to be a humanitarian, natural kind of work. It's going to hurt your heart to hear it, but I need you to hear it. It hurts my heart to say it. it hurts my heart to... Focus on it. But it's the heart of God. There are one billion people right now. That's more than the population of USA, Canada, and all of the European Union combined. One billion people who do not have enough eat to eat today. But I don't have any problem using words like, sweetie, bring some food, I'm starving. Friends, I could sit out in the sun for 40 days and not be starving. There's a billion people on the planet that don't have food. So why did Jesus bless you? They blessed you so that you could be a part of a community. You could join with others. And as a community, you could meet the needs of the world on his behalf. You heard the words, that place is God forsaken. God had forsaken the world, he never would have sent his son in it to save it. But when he sent his son in it to save it, we mistook that. We said, no, he came to save me. He didn't. He came to save you to save everyone. The gospel was, we preached message after message about my personal savior and he would have died just for me. That's a stupid hypothetical situation that did not occur. He died to save the world. And you are one of them. Do you understand the difference? Amen. One is, it's all about me. If there were a hundred people in this room right now, if we do this on a Sunday, it will be the number of people in the room. Okay? So about what fits in this church on a regular Sunday morning, 18 would be undernourished and starving if that 100 people was representative of the world. Would you allow that in this community? Now, as you look around the room on the other side, 15 would be grossly overweight. Would you allow that in a community? Some are getting fat while some are starving. To the Lord, it's not so segmented as the churches on this road are segmented. It's one community. 
83 would have access to safe drinking water. Of course, that leaves 17 who would not have access to safe drinking water in the rent. See, what if we're not talking about countries somewhere else? What if we're talking about people in this room? Have you heard that the world's getting smaller? That with mass transit, with global communications, it's getting smaller. I mean, all of the time, it's easier and easier and easier. The men who reached the known world of their day didn't have any of those things, but 12 of them touched every facet of social, economic, and spiritual. Every possible way the world could be touched was touched by them. Now, as it's multiplied, why have we not had the same effect? They were focused on the world. What have we been focused on? 25 in the room would not have any stored food supply. So if there were 100 people in here that were symbolic of the world's population, 25 would not have a sandwich saved for tomorrow. That's amazing. 25% of the world's population is not guaranteed a meal the next day. They also would not have shelter from wind, rain, or water. A quarter of the world's population does not have basic housing. Only one in the room would have a college education. Do we have more than one in the room today with one of those? Only one would own a computer. Our kids carry them around like toys. Every six seconds, a child dies because of hunger-related issues. In sub-Saharan Africa alone, the epidemic has orphaned 12 million children that are under the age of 18. That's an amazing thing. Part of the need that we have to figure out as a community what we're going to do about is physical. Couldn't you all say that that's staggering? Let's talk about the spiritual need. This is a killer. If 100 people from the world's population are in this room as representative, 17 of them would be Catholic. 21 would be Muslim. There's more Muslims in the world than Catholics. 14 would be Hindus. 6 would be Buddhist. 12 would be people of obscure religions bound together. 16 would be people that had no religious affiliation. And 14 would be evangelicals. There are fewer Bible-believing evangelical people in the world than there are Muslims or Hindus. Or people who have not declared a religion of any kind. Do we have work left to do? Mm -hmm. See, we are living in an aquarium claiming that it's the sea. Our food comes at a regular time. We're familiar with the same players all of the time. And we forget the rest of the world is rough. And what makes us so superior? Well, we were born here. With 12 men, Jesus affected every area of society in the known world. Today, with Christians multiplied, our efforts should be multiplied. The only reason it's not is we feel no sense of connectivity to the rest of the Christians. We're obsessed with ours and our own. And if we really are selfless Americans, then we're obsessed with our church but never the body of Christ as a whole. Every time we leave India, I think, golly, this was amazing. 
Then a few months go by, and I think, I don't know if we can do this next year. There's so many things that need to be paid for. There are so many. And, and I go through this cycle, and then I talk to them. And I begin thinking, I don't know how I could not do it. Are you feeling me? There are a lot of things that we could never do as an individual. But as a community, it really should be no sweat. Our king takes five loaves and two fishes and multiplies them. Of course, he didn't do that for a person, did he? He did it for a community. Yeah. And the community had more than enough left over. Believe me when I say that I and the Father are one. I am in the Father and He is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. The time for talk and half measures that alleviate us from action and insulate us from the cost. It needs to end. It begins with what we do now. It begins right now with what we do. You're familiar with the message of this ministry. If you see thousands going to hell, you may not be able to save thousands, but you can start with one life at a time. <clears throat> but you shouldn't have to do it alone. Thousands one man might life. say, but how many would two say? 10,000. Yeah. God will multiply our efforts if we can learn to work together as a community. I'm teaching you these kind of messages so that you don't exalt two or three people as the workforces and excuse yourself from what God called you to do. He did not bring you here to sit on your butts. He did not send you here to be entertained. He did not send you here just to bless you. He sent you here because there's work for you to do. Every one of you. And each one of us has a different function. But we all have work to do. I'm going to ask Matthew to come back up here. I'm going to tell you that Matthew 16 tells you to deny yourself, take up a cross, give your life away. And it reminds you that he brings a reward when he comes. Now we're going to sing for a few minutes. I wanted to end in worship rather than with just a heavy hand. But i got to tell you a story that I got. Michael told me it encourages him when I share the books that I'm reading. Well, I've been sharing out of Radical this was one of the first I ever read. It was called Reality, the Hope of Glory. This was by a Jewish man named Arthur Cates. He'd just seen a lamb killed. And they were killing a lamb and going to kill a pig to feed 300 people for a festival they were doing. And Art is from Brooklyn. And he'd never seen meat that wasn't wrapped in cellophane. And, you know, this was difficult for him. He said, God had me lined up for the next experience the killing of a pig. I didn't understand what a pig was until I had to feed those ugly, stinking animals. If I had ever thought of the virtues of being kosher, I surely thought of them then. What a loathsome, squealing animal. You have never seen a more greedy kind of thing. When you bring them food, they don't even let you get to the trough. They swamp you. And if they somehow manage to cause you to slip or go down on the manure, you're a dead duck. When you finally arrive at the trough and pour that stuff in, they're already standing in it with all four feet, jumping, nipping at each other, and knocking each other over. They're pigs. 
I thought to myself as I stood there, this must be the most absolutely economical way in which God and his genius has packaged protein. In the prefrigeration age, he gave the maximum amount of, or minimum amount of brain, nerve, and sinew to this animal in order to package the maximum amount of protein. Yet as minimal as the apparatus of intelligence is in the pig, the principle of survival is unbelievably tenacious. It took four men to get that animal down, and each able-bodied man was hanging onto a leg as that stubborn thing jerked. It wasn't like the lamb. It was definitely not going to lay down its life. Somebody had its foot on its head, another on its neck, and that fat thing was still squirming and jerking. At that point, one of the brothers looked at me and handed me the knife and said, Art, would you like to... Uh... There was a sudden and intense repulsion in my soul that took me quite by surprise. This shrinking back sprang from a strange kind of identification with that animal. As I saw it down on its face, squealing and writhing and fighting for its life, the perception was clear and frightening. I saw too much of Art Cates in that animal. I passed the knife to a brother who was experienced with this sort of thing. He seemed to know exactly where to put it. Later, when we had that animal taken all apart, all of its entrails removed, he took out the heart and showed it to me. The knife had gone right into it, slitting it deeply, and yet the animal did not die immediately. It squealed and made a ruckus and writhed and contorted until practically the last drop of blood was out of its body. I've never seen anything die quite so hard as that stubborn, filthy, squealing pig right to the end. I had an unsettling thought. My goodness, that's us. Decorous, quiet, well-behaved Christians sitting nicely in our pews, occasionally giving to missionary endeavors, attending Bible studies and all sorts of lovely church functions. But deep inside, there's a squealing pig writhing full of life, stubborn, and God is standing with his foot on its neck, and it still is not willing to give up the ghost because selfishness is alive and well in the church. Have you seen a more apt description? We're going to worship together. don't want you to feel bad. That is not the point. I want you to be moved to action. There is no offering that we're asking for. It's not so easy as to let you off of a hook by simply writing a check. Question really is, Lord, how can I live in a more sacrificial way for the benefit first of the people around me and ultimately for those who are not around me? And then think about Paul's question if you don't go, how will they hear? Who brought you the gospel? Who lived it in front of you? Or did you fall out of the sky born again? We have a debt. We have a debt to pay. You can't earn your salvation, but you certainly can spread salvation. Amen? Amen. Y'all stand up. Let's let's worship.